The following story has been brought to you by storiestoinspire.org. And it is our great, great honor to call upon the first speaker for tonight, Rabbi Nachman Seltzer. I welcome everybody to our anytime. I'd like to share a story with you that uh, I heard from my friend Rabbi Liff. I wrote a book about, together with Rabbi Liff, called That Is Rabbi's Side, in which he details many of experiences with Gedolim. Very special book. If you get a chance, go down to the bookstore, pick up a copy of That Is Rabbi's Side. I want to share a story from this from this Sefer that happened to Rabbi, um, to Rabbi Yoshev. It's a beautiful story, very special. It goes like this. So, there was a Tamar Chacham Mishalayim who he came down with an illness. And uh, the doctors basically said that uh, that he's going to pass away any second. He's at any minute. He's mamish. There's no. There's no hope for him. And uh, there was one specialist hospital that said there's a uh, there's an idea. There's a non-conventional treatment, and this is his one chance. You know, if he does this, maybe you know he's going to have a chance to to, uh, to survive. Um, and they said the thing is like this: that uh, if you plan to follow my advice, the doctor said. And if you consider leaving the country, if Flacco still went to the hospital, you better leave right now. It, it, it's not just a question of days, time is of the essence, you have to leave right now, you should board the next flight. If you want. If you have any hope of saving your life, you should board the next flight. But the man said, it's Erev Shabbos, the, the patient said. What am I supposed to do? It's Erev Shabbos. How am I supposed to fly on Erev Shabbos? I'm going to fly on Shabbos. I'm going to call Shabbos. So the doctor said, it's a, it's a matter of life and death. It's your only chance. You have to leave right now if you want to survive. So this patient was very close to Yosha. So he took a taxi to Eliyashev's house, and he and he went to ask him what to do. And he's sitting with Eliyashev, and the Talmud Chacham reviews the entire case history, and he, he concludes with the doctor's recommendation that he leave Eretz Yisrael immediately and fly across the world on Shabbos. So Eliyashev listens. He hops the whole thing in a second, and he, he starts asking him questions to understand all the information. And he says to this patient, "If you were to be treated solely with conventional techniques." What would be your chances of uh, survival, of success? And the, the, the patient says, non-existent. I would have no, no ability to survive. It's, it's nothing to talk about. So the Kiryosha keeps questioning the patient, and he picks up the phone, he calls other doctors, he calls other medical professionals, he tries to clarify all the information. What comes to all from the questioning is that this person's chances of survival are very low. And it's, no matter what's going to happen, it's going to take a major miracle for the man to recover, no matter what he did. No matter what happens, it's a major miracle. Yeah, he comes out of the hospital. Somebody else, somebody else asks all these questions. He calls about the doctors, confers with other professionals. Whether they come, it, it's going to take a, a major miracle for for this for uh, for anything to happen, for anything to help. So we I'm sorry, I can't find a hat for you to be mechal shabbos. That's what Yosef says. I'm sorry, I can't give you a to fly in a plane be mechal shabbos if there's really no chance that it's going to work. It's not a question of saving a life, he said. Based on statistics we've been given by all the experts. There's no chance you to recover. He was, he was very sorry, but that's that's the bottom line. And so Yosef says, in such a situation, the psakalach has to be one of Sheval Tas, you leave things in the status quo. And he says, What should I do? The patient says, You should have bitachon in the Rabbi Shalom. Rabbi Yosef said, You should be tachon, and you should have with all your heart. That's what you should do. That's what you should do. Bitachon and dav. So here's the Nam's Chachum. Yashiv gave up Sakalacha. He accepted the words of the early Yashiv. He thanked Rabbi Yashiv for his time. He left his apartment and went home to his own house. And when he got home, his wife asked him what happened. He told his wife, and she said, Okay, I'm very happy that you accepted the Psak, but I don't accept this Psak. And she went back to Rabbi Yashiv's house, and she was determined to speak her mind. The moment she comes into the house, she starts crying. She's sobbing, and she's crying her heart out, bitter, bitter tears. 
And she says, how could the Rav say such a thing? She cries. How could Rabbi Yasha say this? This is my husband, the father of my children. She's crying from the oimik, the shmasa. She's crying to the depths of her heart. Maybe there's a chance to save his life. How could the Rav give a sack of Sheval Taisa? How could the Rav say to do, to do such a thing? What if he lives? What if flying to America is going to save his life? How could the Rav say not to do anything? Maybe because of that chance, if he goes, maybe even if it's very slight, we have to send him. Maybe that's going to help. Maybe the husband should be Michal Shabbos in this case. Maybe that's what he needs to do. Rabbi Yosha listened, complete concentration. When she finished speaking, Rabbi Yosha thought for five minutes without that interruption. He didn't say anything. For, if you have to know for Rabbi Yosha to stop and for five minutes without saying anything, that's a long time. Usually he knew the answer to every question in a second. Here, he's thinking for five minutes. Finally, he makes a decision. And he says to her, your husband gets on the next plane. Call Rabbi Fira immediately. Let's see how we can get him out of the country. So Yashav is in the crisis handling mode. He's giving instructions on how to make it happen in the most effective way. And uh, the men who spend their lives helping people get to America or around the world to different hospitals, they, they, they jump at the gear and uh, they ease all the bureaucracy and they cut through the red tape. And uh, the Tawan Chach of Meir is taken to the airport and they, they put him on the next plane to uh, go to uh, America. He flew on Shabbos, and when he landed, he was brought to the hospital, and the doctors performed the surgery. And the fact is, the Maisa, the man, made a full recovery. He regained his health. Miracle. When he returned to Eretz Yisrael, months later, he went to pay a visit to Rabbi Yosha. And he told Rabbi Yosha the whole story, and he gave thanks to Hashem. And he says, I have a question. He says to Rabbi Yosha, I have a question. Rabbi Yosha says, what's your question? What's, 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 what's your question? What's going through your mind? So he says, I don't understand. When I spoke to the Rav, the Rav told me not to go. And the Rav said it without any shayla. Emphatically. The Rav was sure not to go. When my wife came, the Rav changed the psaq. What was it? That you felt bad for her? Why did the Rav change his psaq Allah? That's my question. So there's a of course it wasn't because I felt bad for her. Absolutely not. Chilos Shabbos is Chilos Shabbos. It doesn't matter who cries. So what was it, says the man? So I'll tell you what it was. Based on the information that I had, that I obtained, there was no help to feed or travel on Shabbos. But there's a Allah in Shulchan Arach that tells us the following Yisoyit. What's the Allah? Huh? If a doctor clicked, there's no cure. But the patient himself insists, I want to try a certain treatment, I want to try a certain medication. It's a situation of called, something called Kimli. I am sure. This means that a person knows himself better than the doctors know them, and we rule according to that. If the person is sure, Kimli, this is going to make me feel better, then we go with that. If the person feels there's a chance for recovery, we take his feelings and intuition into consideration because every person knows himself best in the world better than anyone else, better than any doctor. Like the Torah says, Leave your dead, Morris Nafshe. Dar knows its master. In your case, Rabbi Yosef said, I couldn't send you on the plane because when you came to see me, you never insisted you might be cured. I asked you that question. I asked all the professionals. You didn't argue with me. You didn't say, No, maybe, who knows? You accepted what I say. You didn't fight it. But then your wife came. Then Rabbitson came. 
She shows up. She's nothing like you. She argues maybe there's a chance to save your life. She begs. She cries. She believes that things could change. Now the question changes into something else. Do we say, Ishtar Kagufa, the principle of a man's wife being like himself, could be used to apply the idea of Lev Yodeya Maris Nafshah? Can we save, can we put together the idea of Ishtar Kagufa, that a man's wife is like himself, together with the idea that a heart knows its master, and say that the wife knows the husband? And that she's just the same as if she's the patient herself. And if she says he can be cured, then we should say that we should send him because it's like he's saying that he should be cured. That was why I sat there for five minutes. For five minutes, I didn't say a word. I had to go through the whole sugya. I had to decide whether or not she could be considered someone who knows her husband as well as he knows himself. I had to decide, can we rely on her assurance that he might recover or not? I thought, and I thought, and I thought for five minutes straight, and in the end, I ruled that we could. And you went. And Baruch Hashem. You were healed. So I wrote this story. So it, it didn't just come out in English. Actually, this came out in Hebrew as well. And, and the book came out in Hebrew called the Hecholam. In their Hecholam, in Storm HaGadolim. And Tamid uh, Racham read the story, and they were very, it, it was Mavish Ma'ayur in them. They got very excited. And they called Rabbi Lif. They had to know about the Pesach. They had to think, they had to learn the Sugya. It's a beautiful Sugya. But this this shows us, you know, how what it really means to be a, a Gadol and a Pesach Alocha. That the halacha and life, it's really the same. When a shayla came to Rabbi Yosef, it wasn't just, oh, okay, here's a shayla, what's the answer? It was like he went through the whole Torah in his head, he takes the, this question and he goes through the whole Torah in his head and he applies all the different scenarios mm-hmm, through this amazing computer. His mind was like this amazing Torah computer. And then came the Pesach Halacha. And that's why it's unbelievable. When he came, he got one Pesach, because it all went through one system, one program, but then his wife came. And the whole thing changed. Because now there's a whole new set, a whole new set of variables that, that changed. And she came and he had to reassess the Pesach and give a new Pesach. But that's a mamish, that's a real Pesach. That's a classic example of what it means to give Pesach Halacha. Thank you. Thank you, Rabbi Seltzer, for your tremendous words. As we know, Rabbi Seltzer has literally written so many, so many books, autobiographies, so many amazing books and sfarm and we, uh, about, um, about so many amazing topics. We really appreciate your words tonight. Our next speaker is Rabbi Ben-Sion Klatsko. As we know, um, um, Rabbi Klatsko is the founder of Shabbat.com, tremendous organization which, 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 which unites and inspires tens of thousands of people every single year. And our grand honor to call upon Rabbi Ben-Sion Klatsko. Hello, Shalom Aleichem. My name is Ben-Sion Klatsko, and welcome to Stories to Inspire. I was in shul this morning, and a yid approached me, and he was telling me what a difficult life he's had and the difficulties that he's dealing with right now. But then he looks at me, and he says, you know, Gamzulatova. So I asked him, why Gamzulatova? Why not Zulatova? This is good. So I said, the Gam refers to the Pasuk of Gam ki elech salmavas lo madi. Yes, even though I'm walking through the valley of the shadow of death, I don't fear evil because Hashem, you are with me. So Gam, even in that scenario, Zulatova, it's going to be good. When I was a yeshiva bacher, I was very curious to visit my grandfather's kever, my Zayda's kever. I never met him. He was nifter when my father was five years old. 
So, of course, I never met him. But I knew he was buried in a Besakvaris in Queens called Mount Hebron Cemetery. Says a Bachar, I went to Second Seder and got Rishus to go and visit this kever. And when I came, it was about five o'clock and the cemetery was going to be closing in about a half an hour. So I figured, okay, I'll have a half an hour. It's enough time to go and say a capital Tehillim by my grandfather's kever. I had never been there. I didn't know where it was. However, the office was closed. And I said, okay, I'll look at the matzevas, I'll look at the tombstones, and I'll figure out which is my grandfather. Little did I know that Mount Hebron Cemetery is one of the largest Jewish cemeteries in the world. It's over a half a million kvarim over there. A half a million. And I have the half an hour, and then the gates will close, and I'm going to be stuck inside of the cemetery. So I begin to look from one matzeva to the next, and as I'm looking, I'm seeing how large the cemetery is, and as far as the eye could see, it's just going and going, row after row after row. It seemed to be a mile long, and I'm thinking, this is crazy. How in the world am I going to find the matzeva of my grandfather? I don't know where he's buried. I don't know what it looks like. There are half a million matzevas, and I have a half an hour, and I'm going to be locked. And as I'm looking from one to the next, I begin to panic, and I run, and I begin to run and run, and I'm running and running. I ran down one little row of uh, of, of Matsevis, and then another row, and this row belongs to this shul and to that shul and, and to that congregation. And I'm looking Matseva after Matseva, and I'm davening, and I'm saying, Hashem, Zaydi, you know, I want to just visit you. Please help me. And as I'm running, I'm running, and soon my lungs are burning from the run, and I just can't take it anymore. And I'm about to collapse, and I just, I have to stop. And I bend over just to catch my breath. And as I'm bent over, I look down, and I'm in front of my Zayda's kever. And it was a very small matzeva, and it looked like it was half covered by a bush. It wasn't intended to. And there's no way I could have found that. No way out of a half a million. Kvarim, I had a half an hour, and here I am, right in front of his kever. And I davened, and I told him I wish I had met him, and I hope I'm making him proud. And then I left, on time, not to be locked in to the Besakvaris. Sometimes, when we are in a very, very difficult matzav in life and we think this is utterly impossible we're in gullahs for 2,000 years why would 2001 be any different or 2002 if we weren't good enough in the times of the Vilna Gon, if we weren't good enough in the times of the Maharal in the times of the Beis Yosef in the times of Rashi in the times of Rambam how in the world in America, in New York, in Los Angeles. How are we going to be good enough? And we begin to run and run, and finally we're out of breath, we're out of koyach, and the tsar and the heaviness of Gullus is just crushing us. And especially this year, where we have the 
difficulties in, in Surfside and the difficulties in Mayron and the difficulties in, in Stalin and the difficulties of COVID and the difficulties in, 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 in the war with Hamas and bomb shelters. What a year! I'm out of breath. I'm keeling over. I'm about to give up. And at that moment, lo irara, ki atayimadi, don't be scared, don't be afraid, says Hashem, I am with you, I will guide you, I have your back. We bend down, and there's our Zayda, there's our Tata, there's our, our, our Tata in Himmel, our Heavenly Father. He's. I just want you to try your best. When you feel like you're ready to give up, don't. There's something good that's going to come out of this. I wish you all a meaningful fast this Tisha B'Av. And this should be the last year that we run out of breath. Next year we should stand erect and proud and tall in Yerushalayim HaBenuya. That's for your tremendous words. Our next speaker is Rabbi Uri Lati. We want to remind everyone... About, we want to thank um, all the partner organizations helping put together tonight's very special program, the Chazak Organization. We want to um, call it Tarakula, the Talisman in Torani Time. And one reminder, if someone watching right now, you know someone who has children in public school and would like to transfer yeshiva, reach out to Chazak right now at pstyachazak.org. Email us at psty at chazak.org. pstyachazak.org. It's a great, great honor to call upon renowned lecturer and and speaker, Rabbi Uri Lati from Brooklyn, New York. Welcome everyone to the special event in the three weeks leading up to Shabbat Av. Thank you to Stories to Inspire, Hazak, Torah Anytime, Kol Torah Kula for sponsoring this event, for streaming it. Today, Be'azit Hashem, we'll see two different stories, two different angles, two different views, and come out with one lesson. The first story is about Rabbeinu Hida. When Rabbeinu Hida was visiting Algeria, he walked into a shul on Shabab. He said the keynote over there. On Shabab afternoon, he heard that there were ladies cleaning the house, mopping the floors, painting the house, painting the walls. And he got very upset because he heard about this custom before, but he got very upset. The day of Shabab, where we should be mourning the destruction of the Beit HaMikdash, destruction of the temple, there are ladies cleaning the houses, and they were putting fragrances and nice smells this is the day, out of all days, this is the day you should do it. So he got very upset. He went to Shul, he gathered everybody. He stood up in Shul and he says, Rabbi this custom that you have, you have to abolish this custom. It's not a good custom. Today is a day of mourning, even though it's Shabbat afternoon. Today is a day of mourning for the destruction of the Beit HaMikdash. Do not do this minhag. He walked out of Shul. An hour later, he's walking in the street and he sees two ladies talking to each other and pointing to this to him, pointing to Rabbi Nuhayda and they're whispering. So Rabbi Nuhayda got closer and he said, what are you talking about? You're pointing to me. What are you talking about? So one lady says, I told my friend that Mashiach is not coming this year. So Rabbi Nuhayda, when hearing this, he said, what are you talking about? We have emunah shelema, ahakelo bechol yom she'avo, Mashiach can come at any given moment. Why do you think Mashiach is not going to come? So she says, because you told us in shul that we should abolish this custom. We have this custom because we know Mashiach or the Neshama of Mashiach is born on Shabbat afternoon. And if you're telling us to abolish this custom, that means we shouldn't anticipate for Mashiach anymore. We shouldn't wait for Mashiach. Mashiach is not coming. 
Why should we be happy? Why should we clean the house? Why should we mop the, the floors? Why should, we, why should we paint the walls? If Mashiach is not coming, you're right. Mashiach is not coming this year. So Rabbi Nuhida was very upset. He gathered everyone to shul again. And he said, Rabbutai, I take back my words. You have such a munapish utada. Mashiach could come in any given moment. Continue your minhag. And yes, there are some places till this day, Cha'abi'ab afternoon comes, they get off the floor, they paint the walls, we're not talking about a real paint job, but they clean the walls, they paint a little bit of the walls, they mop the floors, they get ready for Mashiach. That is their way of getting ready for Mashiach. The second story is two very close friends, the Rabbi of Kotsk and Rabbi Tzhak of Varka. They were very close friends, even though they maybe differentiated in their ways of Hasidut, whereas Kotsk was more for the Emet, Varka was more about loving every single Yehudi, but nonetheless, they were best friends. When Rabbi Tzhak of Varka passed away, his son was waiting for his father to come to him, at least in the dream. And he walked, he went to, Rabbi, to, the, to the Rabbi of Kotsk and he said, my father hasn't been appearing to me. I want to know what's going, up, gone up, going on up there in Shamayin. So the Kotsk Rabbi says, you know, it worried me too also. He wasn't coming to me. So I said, if he's not coming to me, let me go to him. So I went up to Shamayin. I went up to Shamayim and I said, where is my friend? Where is my friend Rabbi Tzhak of Varka? Where is he? So they said, he was here and he left. I wanted the yeshiva of Rashi. I wanted the yeshiva of Moshe Rabbeinu. I wanted the yeshiva of the great Tanaim, Amoraim. And they all had the same answer. He was here and he left. So finally they told me, if you want to find him, go all the way to this dark forest. All the way in the end you'll find him. So I went. I went to the forest. It was very dark, very scary, very frightening. I went, and in the end of the forest, this black forest, I saw Rabbi Tzhak of Varka standing by the ocean. And the waves of the ocean were crashing down, waves I never heard before in my life. Frightening. It was very scary to hear these waves. So I saw him, and he was glancing. He was looking at the waters, and he did not take his eyes off the water. And I said, Rabbi Tzhak, my friend, I missed you so much. It's been a very long time since I saw you. What are you doing here by the ocean? Why are you gazing out at the ocean? Why do you keep on staring at the ocean? So Rabbi Sagavraka answered me and he said, I'm standing by this ocean. This is the ocean of tears. This is the ocean of all the Yehudim throughout the years. Suffering, oppressed, in trouble, in pain, in anguish, in sorrow. Crying over the destruction of Beit HaMikdash. All the problems that we have stem from one thing because we do not have a house. We do not have the Bita Mikdash. The Shekhinah is not residing in a house. So Rabbi Sakavarka said, I am standing by this ocean, this ocean of tears made from all the tears of the Yehudim through all the generations. And I promised and I swore and I said, Hashem, I am not leaving this ocean until you dry it up, until you dry up the tears of the Yehudim and you bring Mashiach. Two different stories, but with one attitude we should walk away with, with one lesson. Whereas in the first story in Rabbeinu Hidad, the ladies, they were cleaning the house. They were doing what they can to greet the arrival of the Mashiach because they had Imunah Mashiach come at any moment. The second story is doing an action or showing Hashem how much you care and how much it's bothering you that we don't have Mashiach, that the Shekhinah is in Galut, the Shekhinah is thrown around from place to place. The name of Hashem is desecrated. So everybody 
could take any of the stories and have their own mahalach, have their own path. Whereas we could weep over the Mashiach, we could, we, we, we could scream out to Hashem, Hashem, we need the Mashiach already. Not us, you need the Mashiach. Hashem, you need the house already. You need a house to put the Shekhinah in. You can have that mahalach. You can have the other mahalach of saying, we believe every single moment, and everybody does, of course. We believe in, at every single moment, Mashiach could come at any second. And because of that, we're happy. Because of that, with everything that's going on, with the three weeks, with the Shabi'ab, it's a very sorrow time. It's a very troubled time. It's a very sad time. But with all that, we have Emunah The Mashiach could come at any moment. The, the, the Neshama of Mashiach is being born every single year, being born anew, renewed. We know the Mashiach could come at any moment. So we could take any Malach we want, any pet that we want. But in the end of the day, it's all one. We have to anticipate the arrival of the Mashiach. And we have to tell Hashem, Hashem, dry up those tears. Dry up the ocean of tears that's been filled with all the tears of the Jews being suffered or are suffering every single day. All the generations, Hashem, dry up this ocean. Dry up this ocean of tears and send the Mashiach Sitkenu. And by Hashem, we shouldn't have a bit uh, uh, a We shouldn't be sitting and mourning the destruction of the Beit HaMikdash. We should have the Mashiach already and Sha'abi'af should transform into a hug, into a holiday of only rejoicing and like we said, painting the houses and mopping the floors because Mashiach already came. I thank you for watching and we should take this lesson that it should pain us that there's no Mashiach. It should pain us that Hashem doesn't have a house. And Ma'ajit we really have that on our minds and our hearts and our thoughts, always thinking about it. Hashem can change in a blink of an eye Yeshua'at Hashem keheref ayin, in a blink of an eye, will change our ebel to sason, and he'll change our yagon and anaha to simha be'azit Hashem. Thank you, Rabbi Lati, for your tremendous words, for your powerful, uplifting words. Our next speaker is Rabbi Moshe Don Kestenbaum. As we know, Rabbi Kestenbaum is the author of a lot of amazing sfarim and books on a, on a, on a wide variety of Jewish topics. Olam Hamidos, Olam HaAvoda, and so many other amazing books. And I want to remind everyone about the great work of Stories to Inspire. And everyone should check out that website right now, storiestoinspire.org, and you will definitely be inspired and uplifted. It is our grant called Panya by Kestenbaum. Thank you, Chazak, for this beautiful initiative. Thank you for including me. I want to share with you a story, or really a letter, which has a powerful powerful lesson for all of us to think about. I got the following email about a month or two ago, and I want to read from you from most of the letter. And the letter goes as follows. Hi, Rabbi Kestenbaum. I hope all is well. As a teenager, I went through a really few rough years. Home, home life was terrible. I got caught up in the wrong crowd at a very young age, made bad decisions, acted recklessly, etc., etc. My high school years were a blur of pain, disappointment, hurt, anxiety, anger, confusion, depression, sprinkled with a few good memories. I don't remember exactly all that was when the following story took place, but it was somewhere between the ages of 12 and 16. I remember being at a really low point. I wasn't really from, I was engaged in crazy behaviors. On the outside, I looked like 
pretty much like a typical from Yaakov girl, but I was sick of living the double life. I was hurting badly. I felt like nobody was there for me, no one cared about me, and I didn't want to go on living. I can't remember what my specific issue was at the time, but there was something going on in my life that was causing me a lot of stress. I remember hopelessly walking to the kitchen one morning and sitting down at the kitchen table. The uh, TED newspaper was on the table and I casually flipped through it. The title of your article caught my eye. I read your article, which I don't even remember what it was about. I saw your email address. So I was desperate for guidance and I emailed you without thinking and without knowing who you were. I told myself, if he could help me, I won't give up. I don't even remember what I emailed you or what you responded, but I know we emailed back and forth until you told me that I should call you. I called you and we spoke for approximately 40 minutes. Believe it or not, I don't remember the content of the emails. I don't even remember one word of the conversation. What I do remember, though, is the everlasting feeling of love, care, and compassion I felt after the phone call. My life was in the dumps, and I was in my early teenage years. I felt as though nobody cared, and I didn't see a reason to care about myself. When you spent 40 minutes on the phone with me, I thought to myself, someone doesn't know me, is even willing to give 40 minutes of the time. Someone cares about me that much? If even a stranger can care about me that much, that means I'm worth something, and I better take care of myself as well. From the end of the high school time, it was rocky, twisty, painful road. I somehow managed to get through high school, often remembering our phone call. Anyways, she continues... I've been, and then she talks about how she, Baruch Hashem, is successful and doing well. Baruch Hashem. And then she writes, I began thinking how I got here, how I had the courage to keep going on despite the pain. Of course, Hashem was guiding me every step of the way, and I could not have done it without Him. But as I was sitting and thinking how I got here, I automatically thought about our 40-minute conversation. Often when I think to the darkness, endless nights of pain and loneliness, I also remember the conversation, how it felt that someone cared enough to give me 40 minutes. This email is way overdue. There are many times I wanted to thank you because so many times it kept me going, caused me not to give up. I know you probably don't remember the emails or phone calls, but I'll never forget them. I'll never forget the time you gave me. I will never forget the power of giving someone your time and making them feel like they are worth something. I also feel the need to share with this with you, to update you on my life for two reasons. One, I feel like I owe you so much. And number two, I'm writing this because as humans, we sometimes feel like we're wasting our time with people and that we're not helping them. But you never know what impact just giving your time and attention might have later on them. This is such a powerful letter, such an impact. I feel fortunate I'm not such a tzaddik and I don't usually have this chus of helping people like this. But what a lesson we learned from this letter. Here it was, just talking to this girl, trying to help her out a little bit. And my advice, whatever I told her, she doesn't even remember. But she remembers that I cared about her. That I was, she was important to me. That I invested my time into her. As we're heading towards Tisha B'av, a time of destruction, the base of Mishra is destroyed because of sinaschinam. We have to really think about the people that need chizok, that need encouragement, the people that are yashva vadad, the people that are sitting alone. If this shir, this story, this letter can inspire every one of us listening to at least do one thing for somebody that could use a little chizok, doesn't have to be someone in this desperate, in this 
difficult situation, but somebody that could use a little chizik if we can give them a phone call, pay them a visit, show them some attention, show them some kindness. That will build the base on Migdash. That will bring the Geula. Echa Yashvadad, Klal Yisrael sat alone on Tishabav. We're not allowed to say good morning to each other. We're isolated from one another. Because that's what destroyed the base of Midrash, being isolated, not caring enough about each other. And if we could step forward, even with one small action, small gesture, to somebody that could use our chizak, we don't know the impact that it could have on that person. And we don't know the impact it could have on Shemayim, that Be'ezus Hashem will bring us the Geula, Meher of Yameinu, Amen. Thank you for listening. Rabbi Kestenbaum, for your tremendous, tremendous words, powerful words. Our next speaker is Rabbi Yaniv Meirov. Rabbi Meirov is the CEO and founder of the Chazak organization. And he does so much tremendous um, work for Kla Yisrael, and we really appreciate it. And we want to remind everyone about the great work of the um, of the, about the talisman of the talisman, the Samuel Epstein, who really gives his, his his life and his soul to Klai Yisrael a day in and day out, and he has the ta- If you all your genetic needs, you sit this. You 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 and for talus bags for a talus, whatever it may be, all your genetic needs. All your uh, reach out to the talisman right now at eight five six seven four five nine five eight 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 five six seven four five nine five eight eight. It is our great honor to call upon Rabbi Meirov. One of my favorite stories that really, really inspire me is a very, very famous mashal parable from the Chavetz Chaim who says more or less that there was a king and he goes to visit one of his villages, one of his communities one day. And as you can imagine, the community is really excited to have the king come and to visit. And they make a very, very big feast and a very big meal and the entire community comes out to greet the king. While the king is sitting there in the suda and the meal, they serve him a cup of tea, and the king takes a sip, and he spits it out. And everyone is shocked to see this. And once again, the king takes another sip of the tea, and once again, he spits it out. And everyone's shocked. The mayor of the community goes over to the king, and he tells him, is everything okay? And the king explains to him that there's something wrong with the taste of the tea. It feels like there's pebbles or rocks or sand in there. And the mayor tells the king that's normal. Whenever we take out the water from the well, it automatically comes along with some pebbles, some rocks, some sand. That's just the way it is over here. And the king explains to them, and the king explains to them that this is not a normal thing. What you need to do is you have to have a filter system. You take a cloth, you pour the water, and the water will come through the cloth and the sand, the rocks, the pebbles will stay on top. And the mayor and the entire community are amazed at what chokhmah, what a smart king that they have. Lo and behold, a few weeks pass by, and the king hears that that entire city got burnt down. And he was shocked. He couldn't believe it. He goes down to see the damage to see what happens. When he goes over there, the mayor and the entire community go and start screaming at the king, it's all your fault, it's because of you. And the king says, what did I do? You remember you taught us how to filter water? That's the reason why the fire took down the entire community, the entire city, the entire village. 
He said, what do you mean? And they explained to him that the fire was originally a small fire. It started in one house, but it took too long for the water to be filtered and to pour the water onto the fire. And it started spreading more and more and more. And the king tells the, the, the community and he tells the mayor, you fools, when there's a fire, you do not use filtered water. You use any water you have. And the Nimshal, the lesson from this parable is that unfortunately, in the times we live in today, there's a fire raging, there's a fire going on. And that fire is the fact that there's so many fellow brothers and sisters of ours that are not following the path of the Torah. They do not know what Aleph Bet is, do not know what Shema Yisrael is. And when there's a fire burning, we do not use filtered water. Many people, we ask them to get involved. And what do they say? I myself, I'm not perfect, I'm not good, I have to work on myself, which is 100% we all have to work on ourselves. But we cannot wait for a person to be perfect, because no one's perfect, to get involved. And this connects very nicely to Tisha B'Av, which we hope, Ezra Tashem, with God's help, will be a happy day soon. But every single year that the Bet HaMikdash is not rebuilt, is as if that it was destroyed in that year. We all know that the main sin that we transgressed to lose the Bet HaMikdash was Sinat China, was baseless hatred. So this is something that hasn't been worked on yet. That means whatever we've done up until now, and all the organizations, all the Rabbanim, and all the Askanim, and all those that are involved, whatever they've done up until now is great, but it's obviously not enough. We need Claudia, we need the entire Jewish people to unite, to come together, and to do more. We cannot be satisfied with whatever we've accomplished up until now, all the yeshivot, and all the synagogues and shuls, and all the great organizations, all the kiruv, and all the saving of lives. It's great, but it's obviously not enough. The Gula, the Mashiach, the redemption is not here yet. Let's take this message to heart. We should be zocher, we should merit to see the Gula Shlema, the complete redemption. It should come speedily in our days. Amen v'amen. Thank you, Rabbi Meirov, for your for your timely words. Our next speaker is Rabbi Ephraim Epstein. We want to thank the great work of Kolatar Kula, who's one of the partners in today's very spe- tonight's very special program. As we know, Kolatar Kula sends out short, powerful messages every single day. And everyone should sign up to their amazing broadcast at 908-943-4162. want to thank um, we, we want to thank, and, and it's our, a great honor to call upon Rabbi Epstein to address us tonight. As we know, Rabbi Epstein is a Rav in Cherry Hill, New Jersey, and... We are really we are very grateful for him to join us tonight, Rabbi Epstein. Thank you to Torah Anytime, to Chazak, to Stories to Inspire, and Kola Torah Kula for this wonderful opportunity to share a story, to hopefully inspire at a time period where Klal Yisrael needs inspiration as we approach the nine days. I grew up in a little town in Long Island and moved away when I was 10 years old. Almost 10 years later, I was out on a business call with someone else leading the way and realized that I wasn't too many miles away from where I grew up. 
I said to my colleague, do you mind if we make a stop? I'd like to go see my childhood home. He looked at his watch and said, okay. In the pre-Waze era, we looked on a map. We went the 15 minutes and there it was, my childhood house. I went up, knocked on the door. The person who opened didn't know me. I didn't know them. And it was at a time period that you let strangers into your house. So I said, you know, I grew up in this house. Do you mind if I look around a little bit? Guy said, no, please, come on in. I walked in and I remembered the stucco ceiling in the den. And then I walked into the kitchen and I saw the washing machine, excuse me, the dishwasher. But I realized how small the room was. It looked so different than the way it was when I grew up. But I had a real pleasure in reconnecting to the house of my youth, despite the fact that it looked much different. And when I analyzed it later and spoke to others, we understood it was because I was so much smaller then. And the kitchen looked that much bigger. And the house looked that much bigger. Because the world is always seen through the perspective of the one who is looking. And the difference between a child looking and an adult looking is coming from a very different perspective. Contrast that to years later, I was on a tour of Eastern Europe. I was there with my wife and a whole bunch of couples, and there was a woman who grew up in Poland. And halfway through the trip, she looked on a map and she said, my childhood home is not too far from here. I'm going to leave the trip, go on a taxi, and find my home. Sort of like I did. The Polish taxi driver took her to the area, and she spent hours and hours. And she could not find the house. She came back a very, very upset woman. Because she understood that the house was not there. It had either been destroyed, remarked, or what have you. When I think of these two stories, I think of two types of Yidden in the world. There are those Yidden in the world like this woman in Poland who don't even know where to look for their ancient home, HaKadosh Baruch Hu's house. They don't even know what neighborhood to show up at. And when, they don't even know when they get there if they're, what it looks like. Because it was so long ago and so out of their mind that it's so distant that they don't even know how and where to go. And then there are other Yidden who do know where to go. They say Shalim every day. They say Shalim when they bench. But they don't realize that the Yerushalayim that they're visiting in their minds and that they're going back to is so different than the one that exists today. Because the perspective that we have of what once was is made up in our minds by reading Midrashim and Gemaras, and even though they're all true, there's no comparison. 
as the Gemara in Sukkah says, we're going to start the Dafayomi, as the Gemara in Sukkah says, somebody who went to the Beis Hamikdash and saw the Simcha there, it was like they never saw Simcha any other place on the planet. Our task as we mourn the Beis Hamikdash this coming week is to A, also mourn the fact that there are so many millions of Jews that don't know where to start looking for their ancient home for HaKadosh Baruch Hu's house. But also recognize that when we look for HaKadosh Baruch Hu's house, mourn for it, pine for it, hope for it, daven for it, we can't imagine the way it really will be. But we just trust that the same Hashem that got us this far is the same Hashem that will bring us and usher us back into the Beis HaMikdash with all of its grandeur and all of its glory soon in our days. Thank you. Thank you so much, Rabbi Epstein. Our next speaker is Rabbi Nachum Shiner. Before we introduce Rabbi Shiner, I want to thank the great work of Torah Anytime for helping stream tonight's very special program as well as all the great work they do throughout the entire year for, for Klai Yisrael. They have thousands upon thousands of shiurim from tremendous, tremendous, the best speakers in the world. And everyone should go to TorahAnyTime.com. Day, night, whatever it may be. Shiurim for men, women, kids, young, old, everybody. For, from all backgrounds, everyone should go to TorahAnyTime.com. You will, you will not regret it. And there's a great article upon you by Nachum Shiner, who is the Rav who is the Rosh Kolel of Beis Medrash, Warachayim, in Muncie, New York. Once upon a time, there was a 12-year-old boy. What does a 12-year-old boy do? He's preparing for his bar mitzvah. It's a few months before his bar mitzvah, preparing his pshatel, as well as laying the parsha, the aftairah. They're finally there, it's a week before the bar mitzvah, prepared his whole pshatel, prepared as Parsha, prepared as Aftira, and they're waiting for the big day, for the Shabbos. The father realizes that the Aftira that the son prepared was the wrong Aftira. I'm not exactly sure if it was a Shabbos Rishchidosh and he prepared the Parsha Sashavua, the Aftira, and he's really supposed to prepare the Aftira for Rishchidosh. Just on a side note, this past Shabbos, Shabbos Rishchidosh Av, there's a big shaila of what Haftorah to read, Gimel the Peronius, or rather Shabbos Rishchidosh. But anyways, they didn't know what to do. He prepared the Haftorah, and there was no way that he could prepare the other Haftorah, the right Haftorah. You see, I don't know if you're a Balkaire or you're not a Balkaire, but the papir takes a long time. I personally started laning a few years ago, and even just on a Monday and a Thursday, it takes a long time to papir. The boy was devastated. He worked so hard to prepare his, to lane his Aftira, and now he can't lane the Aftira. What do you do? They decided, we're going to go to Rav Shlomo Zalman. They got into a taxi, a monit. They went to Shari Chesed. They're going to ask the Poisegadur, Rav Shlomo Zalman, what should you do? They come to Rav Shlomo Zalman. Rav Shlomo Zalman listens to the question. And Rav Shlomo Zalman says, it's fine. 
he tells the boy you could lay in the haftoyre that you prepared. I don't know the halacha aspect of it, what haftoyre, why he was right to lay in that haftoyre, but he said it was fine. The boy was so happy, amazing, he prepared, and he's looking forward to laying his, the parasha, the haftoyre. Shabbos morning, the week of the, the week that they're gonna go lane, they get up early. The father, the son, they come to shul. Who's sitting there? Who's there? Davening Rabbi Shlomo Zalman. The father runs over to Rabbi Shlomo Zalman. He tells him, "Thank you so much for coming for joining the simcha. But please tell me, explain me. You live far away." Rabbi Shlomo was already older then. It was a long walk, a tiring walk. It was time, it was energy. Rabbi Shlomo was a poisek ador, shyless, learning. The father wanted to understand. It was nice, you came to join in my simcha. You could have called me before Shabbos, wish me mazel tov. Rabbi Shlomo said the following. I knew your son is going to lay in the Aftira, like I said, that's what's going to happen. However, what, what's going to happen? They're going to start, the Birchus Aftira is going to start laying the Aftira, which is not the right Aftira. And you know, there's always the seven people, the people in the back with fixing the mistakes. And the guys are going to say, oh, it's the wrong Aftira. Back and forth, forth and back. The Gavi is going to say, "Shh, Rabbi Paskind." Good. A minute later, they're going to continue. The boy is going to lay, and it's going to be perfect. But said Rabbi Shleim Zalman, that one minute that the boy is going to be embarrassed, he's going to feel pain. For that, it's worth it for me to come, that I'm going to be present. And when the boy starts laning, if anybody makes any motion, I'll say right away, yes, it's okay for him to lane that Aftira. It's worth it for me to come to prevent any tsar, even for one minute, of this 13-year-old boy. Rabbi Sai, we just started now the nine days. We have the three weeks the nine days intensifies our Avelis on the Churban. And as we get closer to Tishabov, we're being misabel on the Churban. Why did the Churban happen? Why did the Beis Amigdash, why was it destroyed? So the Gemara says, because of Sinas Chinam. The second Beis Amigdash was destroyed because of Sinas Chinam. For us to bring back, to bring back the Beis Amigdash, we need Avas Chinam. What is Avas Chinam? Not to do Sinas Chinam means don't shepherd your friend. Don't tell him a, a not nice line. Don't speak Lashon Hara. That's all Sinas Chinam. What's Avas Chinam? You know what Avas Chinam is? To go out of your way to be sensitive and careful to make your friend feel good. Or that he shouldn't have, something shouldn't bother him. You see, Rabbi Shleim Zalman, if he wouldn't have came, sure it's not sin for him not coming. 
And yes, the, the, the bar mitzvah boy wouldn't have felt so comfortable for that minute. Rabbi felt it's important to come, to spend the time, the energy. That's avas chinam. To bring back the Beis Amigdash, we have to work on avas chinam. Avas chinam is you see a friend, tell him a good morning, give him a good line. Let me tell you, everybody likes a compliment. Everybody. Even if they tell you they don't, they like a compliment. Give them a good morning, a good afternoon, how you doing? But one pointer. Let me just bring out this hello, this good morning. You see, it's very interesting. The day of Tishabov, as we're saying now, which is the biggest availus on the Churban, and that's the time we should be really working on Avas Chinam. You know what the Allah is in Shulchan Aruch? You're not supposed to greet your friend. Could you imagine? You see your friend Tishabav in the morning, you don't say hello to him, you don't say good morning. Shouldn't it be the opposite? It should be like Kiddush Levana, you know, the Shalom Aleichem. It should be a din. You should go to every single person and say Shalom Aleichem. It should be Avas Chinam. My father just told me the other day a beautiful answer. You see, every morning you see the guy, good morning, that's the regular lingo. Does a person really mean it? And if a person doesn't really mean it, the other person just, yeah, good, have a good day, how you doing, good, you really want to know how he's doing? We take a stop, Tish above, we take a pause, and we don't say good morning. To make sure that when we say good morning, we really mean it. You know how it feels the next morning, Tishabov, the day after Tishabov, you see the guy that you saw him yesterday, you couldn't say hello, you give him a smile, a good morning. That's Avas Chinam. Avas Chinam is to care about somebody, sensitivity, smile to him. And with this Avas Chinam, we're going to be Zoycha, that yet this Tishabov, which is a Moyed, will be Zoycha. To the binyan base amigdash ashlishi b'mehira b'yameinu. Thank you, Rabbi Shiner, for your tremendous words. We still have so much tremendous speakers coming up. I want you to continue tuning in, inspire, and getting inspired, and inspiring others by sharing this link right now at torahanytime.com/chazaklive. Torahanytime.com/chazaklive, where people can watch, where people can listen right now at seven one eight two nine eight two zero seven seven extension forty six seven one eight two nine eight. 2077 extension 46. It's a great honor to go upon our next speaker for tonight, Rabbi Avi Slansky, who lives right now in Israel, who is, the, who is a tremendous author. Um, him, together um, with the Shurim of Rabbi Shagar Kaos, have put out numerous, numerous svarim on halacha and have really uplifted the observance of halacha through their amazing svarim, Rabbi Avi Slansky. I'd like to begin by thanking Stories to Inspire for all the wonderful work they do, all the content that they curate and put out there so that everyone can listen, find a beautiful story, inspire, and move on with their day. And today's special Tishbav edition, we all hope that we'll be able to inspire in the same way. It was Yushalayim 20-some-odd years ago, and there was a young girl who wasn't so young anymore. We'll call her Rivka. And she needed a Shidduch, and she davened. And she did different schoolies, and she lit candles early, and she gave stuck, and she went to Kivri Tzadikim, and just nothing seemed to work. 
And after so many times, the 40 days at the Kaisel, one day she woke up, she told her mother, I'm going to the Kaisel. And the mother said, okay. This was a common occurrence. She went to the Kaisel to Davin. But as she drove the bus to the Kaisel, she started thinking to herself, I, I really need this shidduch. It, it's over. It's not, I, and she was getting deeper and deeper and more desperate. And as she walked up to the Kaisel, as she walked up to that wall and she touched the stones and she gave it a kiss, there was a level of rock bottom that she felt. There was a connection. She felt, I need the shidduch Hashem, please. And she started davening. And she started saying to Hillam. And the tears started coming. And she started pleading with her father in heaven. I need a shidduch. It's been so many years. All my friends are engaged. I just want to start building a Jewish household. And davening and crying. Saying to Hillam. 20, 30 minutes. Finally, all her energy is zapped. She gives the wall one last kiss. And she walks up to the bus. And as anyone who's ever been in Yushalayim waiting for a bus from the Kaisal could appreciate, there was hundreds of people waiting. Every bus that came, instead of 50 people cramming in, 100 people crammed in. And Rivka is sitting and waiting and she was a bit down, a bit in her own place, a bit feeling at some level elevated. She felt connected. And she didn't want to push to get on a bus. So she waited and waited. But finally, after two, three buses passed, she realized, if I don't push my way onto a bus, I'm going to be here forever. So the next bus that came, as it fills up, Rifka gets onto that back door and starts, you know, pushing her way in. And she thinks she's finally going to get on. One of the last people and another girl, we'll call her Leah, pushes her way in front of Rifka. And Rifka looks at Leah and says, what are you doing? And Leah says, I've been waiting here a half hour. Rifka says, no, you weren't. I've been here for over an hour. And Leah says, I'm sorry, I was. And as the doors start closing, Leah calls out to the driver, Nahag, Nahag! Wait, there's a girl trying to get on. And she even tried to hold Rivka's hand and pull her up. Rivka wasn't able. The door is closed. Leah's on the bus. And Rivka's standing there, so upset. Such a chutzpah. She wasn't waiting here an hour. And under her breath, as she walked away, she whispered, I hope she doesn't make it home. And she waits, and finally she gives up hope on the bus. She jumps into a taxi, and she starts going home. On the way home in the taxi, there starts sirens, commotion. The taxi driver stops, there's nowhere to drive. She gets out, and she sees in front of her, there was a terrible terrorist attack. There was a bus bombing, and she starts shaking. And she looks, and she sees the number two bus. That, that was the bus I was supposed to be on, Rifka thinks. And then the next thought that hits her, wait... Leah, I said, I hope she doesn't make it home. Could, could it be? And she starts walking towards the attack, trying to see. Of course, she can't get any closer, and she waits around a little bit, asking around who were the ones that were killed. Was there a girl? They start describing, and she can't get any details, and she just starts walking home. She makes a long trek to her house, and when she walks in, she's greeted, You're alive! I can't believe it! And her mother and her father and all her siblings are there saying, Tell him, you're alive, you're alive. There were no cell phones. She heard there was a terrorist attack. The mother, the father, the whole family, they knew her do- their daughter was at the Kaisal. And then she walked through the front door, such a simcha. After hugging and kissing and being grateful for being alive, Rivka starts crying. And she says, I, I could have been on that bus, I could have been on that bus. And she can't really be consoled. And... She doesn't really want to eat, and she just goes and cries herself to sleep. And over the next few days, next few week or two, her mother realizes Rivka's being a little bit strange. Rivka 
wouldn't tell anyone the reason. Everyone thought it was the site of the terrorist attack. It was the potential of maybe even being on the bus. But deep down, Rivko was walking around with this secret. She felt, I muttered those words. I hope she doesn't make it home. And she remembered all the different speeches that she heard. That at a time of caste, at a time of anger, the power of the tongue, the merit of blessings and bracha one could give at that moment. And she realized, I did the opposite. I cursed that girl. And then she starts asking around, was the girl really on the bus? Starts to read the news reports and she doesn't get real details. She doesn't really know the girl, but that image of the girl. The image of the girl looking back at her as the bus is pulling away with a little bit of a I'm sorry face and the image of herself muttering, I hope she doesn't make it home. Just replayed again and again and again in her head. She couldn't eat. And her mother suggested, do you want to go speak to a therapist? And she didn't want anything. Deep down, she just felt, I killed that girl. I had the moment. I had the power of my tongue. I was so angry, so upset. And I was so elevated at that moment. I just finished davening for a half hour. I blew it. Not only did I blew it, I, I maybe killed that girl. Two weeks later, she turns to her mother and says, I'm going back to the Kaisal. Her mother is a little bit nervous. Really, she'd go back to the Kaisal. It's a little bit still too fresh. And she says, I, I need to go daven. Her mother offers to go with her. She says, no. She takes the bus back to the Kaisel. She goes to the wall, again, walking up to those stones, touching the stones, kissing the stones. Deja vu all over again. She starts crying. She is begging Hashem for mechila, for forgiveness. I can't believe what I did. I know the power of the tongue. I can't believe what I did. She kisses the wall 20, 30 minutes later, and she walks away. A bit of a stone lifted off her chest, but at the same time, still feeling a bit, she doesn't know what to do. And she gets up again, and as she walks towards that bus stop, again, there's hundreds of people there, and she's trembling as she walks forward. And she stands there, and she starts waiting as the buses fill one after another. And then she looks over her shoulder, and she sees a girl. What? And she starts walking closer. And as she gets closer, she realizes, that's the girl, it's Leia. She runs over to Leia, and she says, Leia, you're alive. And Leia looks at Rivka and says, Rivka, you're alive. Rivka says, of course I'm alive. And after they both calm themselves down, they walk to the side and they sit down. And Leia says, I was sure, I was sure you were killed. And Rivka says, you were sure I was killed? You were the one on the bus. And Leia says, I was on the bus, but at the next stop, I realized I left my Tehillim at the Kaisal. So I got off the bus, I walked the 15 minutes back, I got my Tehillim, and as I was waiting, I heard the news of a bus bombing. I heard the news that a bus blew up. And in my brain's calculations, I realized it was probably the bus after the one I was on, which was the bus that you were supposed to be on, Rivka. And I felt so terrible that I took your spot, that I pushed my way on and you were killed. And for the last two weeks, I couldn't eat. I couldn't sleep. All I was thinking is how I killed you, how I didn't do more to get you onto that bus. And now it was Rivka's turn to say, I felt the same way because you don't realize I was so upset and I muttered under my mouth, I hope she doesn't make it home. And I was so sure that the words did something. And I can't believe it. And the two of them calmed down. They exchanged names. They didn't even know who each other were. And as we hear this story, there's so many points that we could take out of it. But just one thing is when we heard, and when we realized the power of the tongue, especially when we're angry, and we've heard of the tremendous brachas and schoolas, and we heard and we all connected, and we felt maybe it's true. Maybe it was Rivka's mouth that did it. Let's realize words mean so much. 
And whether the words will actually have the power to kill another person, they certainly have the power to damage another person. They certainly have a power to hurt another person. How careful we have to be with our words, which is one of the biggest impetuses of the Besamikdash destruction. And of course, let's realize the power of a Tehillim. How Leah went back to pick up a Tehillim, which ultimately saved her life. And hopefully with the realization, the recognition, the encouragement and the chizik and the strength that we'll give to our Tehillims, to our words, will merit the rebuilding of the base Amigdash. Bimheir v'yaminu. Amen. Rabbi Slansky for your tremendous words. Our next speaker is Mr. Harry Rothenberg. Mr. Rothenberg is a tremendous, tremendous speaker. Every single week he puts out a tremendous partial clip, which literally every week goes viral. Wherever you go, you go, you, people get, people are texting, WhatsApping. These, he's amazing videos because it's so to the point, and it's so it's it touches it really touches your heart. And it's a great honor to call upon Mr. Harry Rothenberg. Last week, one of my relatives passed away. He was married, didn't have children was not observant. His wife, who was a blood relative to me, was not planning on an observant Orthodox funeral, Kehalacha. But I spoke to her. Some of my siblings spoke to her. She did not want to have a rabbi with a big beard officiating. We reassured her, don't worry. My brother-in-law, who's a rov, who's clean-shaven, he could officiate. We'll pay if there's any extra cost. And she said, okay. And it was an incredible Kiddush Hashem. My parents were there, my wife and I, my brothers and sisters, and brothers-in-law and sisters-in-law, my brother-in-law who officiated, did a beautiful job, the redivery has spayed them, a minion for Kaddish. My family members made sure that we did the entire burial, every shovel full of dirt was done by us rather than by grave diggers. And another relative who was there, who's also not observant, came over to me. And he was so moved by this that he said, you know, when I go, I hope the Rothenbergs will take care of me like this as well. I said, of course we will. Your family. And then after the funeral, I figured it was an ace Rothson. So I asked him if he'd be willing to come visit my house for a Shabbos, which he had never done before. And he said, yes. So we're trying to plan that. In Mirz Hashem, it'll happen. But something else happened back at that cemetery that was equally, if not far more powerful. My mother told me and my siblings that her parents and her grandparents were buried in that same cemetery. And so for the first time, my siblings and I went to visit those graves, as did my son, who was also in attendance. And as I was standing in front of the graves of my mother's parents for the first time, I couldn't help but contrast the experience with a different one that I have every year. I lead a Kirov trip to Israel. When we go to Tiveria, I always like to take the guys to Kever Rambam because everybody knows the Rambam, Maimonides, whether you're observant or not, Jewish or not. While we're there, I also stop by at the Kever of the Shla because I'm a direct descendant. It's a very humbling experience when you stand at the grave of the, the Zayda hoping that I'm doing my best to live up to his incredible legacy. Those are really, really big shoes to fill. How can you possibly fill them? But here is the opposite reaction. Because my mother's parents were not observant. And I was thinking, it must be a beautiful thing. I'm sure they get schar from the learning that I do and the tzedakah that I give and the Torah that I spread. And then my son came over to stand next to me. And I could not imagine what that must be like 
from my grandparents, his great-grandparents, to meet him for the first time. The schar that they get from a chosh of Avrich in Kolel spends his days and his nights steiging away had to be an unbelievable thing for them to get to meet me and especially him for the first time. Whether you like it or not or realize it or not, you are connected to your relatives. In fact, halachically, you're a karo within five generations. Once it's six, there's no longer a halachic connection as a relative. It's interesting. They say that when Rav Yashav, around the age of 100, became a great-great-great-grandfather, now it's six generations, he immediately said, Mazel tov, I can be an aide for him, I can be a witness for him, because he and that new baby were no longer relatives halachically. But when it's five generations, son, father, grandfather, great-grandfather, great-great-grandfather, those are connected, those are relatives. And there's a bond. I have a friend in Israel, a Rav with whom I'm very close. He told me that a number of years ago he was learning at night and he suddenly collapsed for about half an hour. He thought it was just out of sheer exhaustion. He had learned himself into unconsciousness. And he found out later that the moment that he passed out was the moment that his grandfather had died. He didn't know that. He hadn't gotten the news yet. But there was a connection. Also explains something that always bothered me for years. When you look at the beginning of Parsha's Korach, he's only listed back three generations, his father, his grandfather, and his great-grandfather. Not great-great. Why? Because Chazal tell us that Yaakov daven to Hashem. Don't include me with the assembly of Korach. What bothered me was that that was Yaakov's tefillah. He sees prophetically that his great-great-grandson's going to go off and the best he could come up with is, oh no, don't, don't make me part of that. Couldn't he have said something like, you know, please, God, try to look after him? But the answer I saw once is that that is exactly what he was doing. Yaakov understood that Korach is still within five generations. It's his great-great-grandson in the future. And so he was telling Hashem, please don't include me with him because if you do, since I'm a relative, I know you're going to hold him to a higher standard and the punishment's going to be worse. So I'm begging you, cut me out so that the punishment won't be as bad. See, he was praying for his great great grandson. Four generations back, four generations forward. Those nine generations are connected. The ones who are no longer with us, whatever we do down here, they benefit from. And then if we're fortunate and we get that gift and we have children, or grandchildren, or great-grandchildren, great-great-grandchildren, whatever they do, once we're up there, will benefit us. And of course, those who pass away also benefit from those who They've influenced and other family members who do good things and who learn in their honor. So I was thinking that on Tisha B'Av when we talk about the Sinas Chinam that destroyed the Beis HaMikdash and when we consider the Tisha B'Av that we've been living through day after day after day for months now, Surfside, Carlin Stolen, the Italian cable car, Meron, of course we don't know why Hashem is doing these things, but we know that we have to work on ourselves. And we know that if we want to counteract the sinas chinam to destroy the base of Megdish, and we want to rebuild it, we have to work on avas chinam. And often what that means is working on repairing our relationships with friends, colleagues, people with whom we may have had disagreements or with whom we're in a fight. But it's got to start in the home. 
The Aleph base starts Aleph base because Aleph bias. Your home comes first. I have a friend whose wife lost her father a number of years ago. After the Shiva, she told her husband that it was so incredible to hear and see all the people that came to visit during the Shiva, many of whom she know, who share with her stories of how instrumental her father was in their lives, and others, many of whom were strangers, also shared stories. She never met these people before. Now she was hearing about what an impact her father had made on the lives of so many people. And then she said to her husband, but I couldn't help but wonder, why wasn't my father there for me when I needed him? You do not want to leave this world and leave behind kids or grandkids who needed you. You do not want to be apologizing from beyond the grave. You don't get that opportunity. Nor do you want to be apologizing if you're a surviving relative, saying, I'm so sorry that I didn't spend more time with you. I'm so sorry that I didn't tell you how much I love you and how meaningful you are to me and how important you are to me. Do it now while you have the opportunity. As someone once said, unfortunately, we're often cruelest to those who are most merciful to us and most merciful to those who are cruelest to us. Strangers, random people. Maybe we get insulted, but we just don't respond. We don't retaliate. We hold it in. Ah, but when it's a close family member, a parent or a grandparent or a son or a daughter or a brother or a sister or an aunt or an uncle or a cousin, we let them have it with both barrels. So maybe that's something to work on during the nine days and on Tisha B'Av thinking about that connection backwards and how much they can benefit from us, those who are in Shemayim. Thinking about how important it is to make sure that you have that connection forward, that it's a healthy one, and sideways with siblings. Let's work on that. Aleph bias, Aleph base, it starts in the home. Thank you, Mr. Offenberg, for your touching, touching words that really touched all of our hearts and really inspired us t- um, tonight for, as we prepare for Tisha B'Av coming up. Our next speaker is Rabbi Shlomo Landau, who is the director of Torah Links of of of, of New Jersey, and um, and um, and um, Rabbi Landau has actually come out w- with a podcast recently, very popular podcast together with called Torah Kula. It's called Soul Stories. It's, it's a tremendous podcast, and everyone should, should 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 check it out. It's really amazing at kolatorakula.com slash stories. Again, kolatorakula.com slash stories. You will definitely um, be uplifted and enjoy that. Um, Rabbi Landa. The Chabina Rav's father, the Koych of Miyakov, had a little daughter. The daughter was wonderful. She was a happy child. She was the sunshine. At some point, she developed a terrible eye infection. They went from doctor to specialist, and nobody was able to help her. Faced with no other choice, the family traveled all the way to Vienna, to see one of the leading eye specialists in the world. He examined the girl for two or three minutes, and he said, I got it. She cries too much. If she would stop crying so much, her tear ducts would be less infected, and the eye infection would go away. They looked at their daughter with perplexion. She was the picture of happiness. She was always besimcha. She cried a lot. They said, it's impossible. That can't be the diagnosis. The doctor insisted. He looked at the young girl, and he says, tell your parents. Tell them when you're crying. The girl confessed. She said that the room to her bedroom shared a wall with her father's study. And after a long day of seeing people and learning, the father would sit down, her father, the 
Koich of Miyakov would sit down and he would begin to say to Hillam, for the sick, for the downtrodden, for the many people that he had met throughout the day who needed Yeshua, who needed salvation. And when he thought about the Tsaras and Klal Yisrael, he would begin to cry bitterly and uncontrollably. When his young daughter on the other side of the wall heard her father cry, she too would cry bitterly and the tears could not stop. The doctor said, you see, I'm telling you, the poor girl is crying because you're crying. This story is so appropriate for Tisha B'Av. Often on Tisha B'Av, we focus on our own tears. We focus on our own pain, our own loss, our own struggles. And maybe even we focus on the national loss of Klal Yisrael, the difficulties and the challenges, the terrible tragedies in Klal Yisrael. But sometimes we forget that on Tisha B'Av, our Father in Heaven, Avinu Shabbat cries most bitter of all. His children are in pain. He wants to rebuild his home. But sadly, we haven't merited it. And sadly, he can't do it. And against his will, if one could say such a thing, he's unable to bring us the Yeshua and the salvation. Perhaps this Tisha B'Av, if we focus on our Father's tears, we too can be moved to tears. If we focus on the scalding, uncontrolled tears of the Rabbi Nishlam, of our Master of the Universe, our Father in Heaven, we as his children will not be able to control our emotions and we'll cry for the tsarash Hina, for the pain of HaKadosh Baruch Hu. And who knows, maybe our tears, as a result of the tears from the Rabbanu Shalom, will be enough. Umach HaShem Dima Mi'al Kaupanim. HaShem will dry our tears, He'll dry His own, and He'll bring us back to Yerushalayim. And there'll be no more tears. May it happen this year, may it happen speedily. Bimheira Biyameinu. Here, Rabbi Landau, for your very touching words. Our next speaker is Rabbi Yaakov Rachimi. As you know, Rabbi Rachimi has works very closely with Chazak and Torah anytime. Very inspiring, very inspiring uh, speaker and, and really um, impacts Jews from all backgrounds, young and old, and everyone in between. And it's our great honor to call upon Rabbi Yaakov Rachimi. Thank you, Story to Inspire. Thank you, Torah Anytime. Thank you, Rachimi. Thank you, for Chaz- thank you, Chazak Organization, for arranging this. Uh, stories to inspire event during the nine days. I'll try to share with you a quick machshava, a quick thought that I got tremendous chizuk from, especially in these days that we're holding right now in the Churban Bet Hamikdash, the destruction of the Bet Hamikdash, and a quick story about the power of vitul, the power of giving in, the power of giving in. Our whole lives, Baruch Hashem, we heard at the term since we were children, give in, be moichel, be moichel, be that nice person. But until you start being me'ayin in Divrei Chazad, until you start reading the Sfar Magdashim, you will be shocked to see how much Chazal and the Mekubalim and the Rishonim are meshabech, praise this power, this midah of a person that gives in, no matter what the situation is. He gives in. Except, by the way, the only time we really shouldn't give in is when somebody messes with the Kadosh Baruch Hu. We learned it from Pinchas. Pinchas did not let anybody mess with God. You embarrass Hashem in public, I will get up 
and I will make a mecha'a, I will protest for God. Obviously, Pinchas uh, was physical, I'm not talking about physical. But when somebody, chas v'shalom, desecrates Hashem's name in public, we are not mochel, we are not mevatel, we don't give in. We get up and we protest v'akadosh baruch Hu. We make sure our voices are loud and clear. You will not step on Hashem. We will do what it takes to make sure Hashem gets His honor in the world. But when it comes to our personal lives, to our kavod and our honor, that's where a person should be mevatel. When it comes to Hashem's honor, don't give in. When it comes to your honor, give in. Make sure you're not that person that has everything the opposite. When it comes to you, whoa, you took my parking spot, you're missing $5, you took my jacket without asking, la la la, la la la, you start going crazy. But when you see a Jew doesn't keep Shabbos, you know, that's the way it is, you know, people don't keep Shabbos. What does that mean? It doesn't bother you, it doesn't hurt you that somebody is not keeping Shabbos. Hashem created such a beautiful world, He gave them such a, a life, He gave them bodies that are walking on earth, He wrote a clear tarot, and you see somebody literally just doesn't listen to Hashem, whether it's their fault or not, it's a different picture. But the fact that it's happening should bother you a lot for Hashem's honor. Hashem, Hashem, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry that there are Jews that don't keep Shabbat. Please be mochel dem Hashem. You please forgive them. It hurts me so much. When it comes to Hashem's honor, don't give in. Do something about it. When it comes to your honor, give in. And I want to share with you a tremendous Arizal. You ready for the Arizal? We know that Arizal wrote many tikkunim and sigufim. Let's say a person wants to be chuzah b'teshuvah. Let's say a person did an avirah, did a sin. So there's many ways how he can erase the avirah. Whether after, after repenting and doing all the uh, levels and all the tna'im conditions of repenting, which is doing charata, saying I'm not going to do it again, taking it upon himself never do it again, uh, so asking forgiveness for the past, and trying your best to avoid situations that led you to sin, and then doing vidui. There's other tikkurim that erase that verot totally, totally, totally. Besides limud ha-Torah, besides learning Torah, and when I say learning Torah, I mean really learning Torah, like opening up a Gemara and Mishnah and really putting your head into it. That's the biggest kaparat ha-Vonot. That erases that verot totally, like Chazal tell us. But the Arisa over here, he wrote many sfarim specifically how a person can erase his sins, whether it's tzedakah, whether it's fasting, he says tremendous, tremendous things that in our rabbis, especially Chamavada told us in our generation, we cannot keep, keep up with, except Limud Torah, which is the most important thing. But listen to what the Arizal brings down. He says like this, and this is no for us in the nine days, including myself. Omer Arizal, Echad one of the greatest tikkunim, one of the greatest things a person could do, actions a person could do to erase and fix his past and erase his sins, a person that lets things slide by a person that lets things he lets it go like they say let it go let it go when a person lets go for his ego when a person is mochel and he forgives somebody that offended him Hashem will forgive him too you see it's a two way street when a person is forgiven to others when they damage his honor and he feels hurt from them and they did something to him that unfortunately now he feels like he got uh, uh, made fun of, and now he's, you know, he feels like someone was mezelzel him, disrespected him. It hurts, it's offending. But when a person is a man about it and says the words, I am mochelyu, I forgive you, God sees that, and Hashem hears it, and He says, Ah, oh, this is how you treat others. Although they were 100% wrong, you were still mochel them. Even though you're 100% wrong for doing an Avera, I will be Mukhelio, I will forgive you too. It's Mida, Kenegid Mida. So it says that Arizal, 
One of the biggest things a person could do to erase his averot is to forgive one another. Now let's take this home and make it real halachalama said, make it practical. Let's really forgive people. Say the words, I forgive you. I forgive you. Those words make a tremendous difference on your neshama and the way HaKadosh Baruch Hu looks at your history from the past to erase your averot. And look what he says, If you're going to be able to hear somebody make fun of you, you're not going to answer him back. Be happy, Hashem gives you such yisurim, such pain. Why? That is medicine, that will heal your soul of averot. You hear this? When a person is making fun of you, when you feel disrespected, it should never happen. But when it does happen, know that it's a gift from Hashem that He sent someone to you to basically be mevazeyu. It's hard, but to basically disrespect you and you feel hurt. Hashem sent you a gift because that feeling of hurt erases your averot. And there's no greater thing in life than erasing your averot. And when a person is mevatel, he gives in and he's mocher, that person that hurt him, and he doesn't fight back. Wow! That power of vitul, of giving in, is a tremendous, tremendous koach. So anytime a person gets hurt, including me, big talker. Next time we're going to give in and say, I forgive you. I forgive you 100%. Hashem should give you only barcha ve'atzlacha. That midah itself will rebuild the bet of Mikdash, the koach of itu, of not being makpid on one another. But when it comes to Hashem's honor, we have to be makpid. I want to share with you a story about the power of giving in. This story was said over Parashat Yitro Tavshin Pei Aleph A couple of months ago Short story This person instead of the story is Ben Sion Ben Sion from the city of Modi'in Elit Modi'in is an Eretz Yisrael He says like this Achoti shikvaregia legil My older sister is an oldest single girl She's already 28 Baruch Hashem She got engaged very recently but I have to tell you what happened. How the story unfolded that she got engaged. I will tell you, listen to this. One month before she got engaged, my son comes home from Cheder. My little boy comes home from Cheder from school. And he tells me, Abba, Abba, did anybody call already that our sister is engaged? He comes running home from school, gets jolted by the bus, he runs home and he says, Abba, Abba, Daddy, Daddy, did we already get a call that our older sister is engaged? Is she, is she a Kala? Is she a Kala? So the father turns to his son and tells him, Lama ken? What? What, what happened to you suddenly? Do you walk in basically screaming, Mazel Tov, is my sister already engaged? What are you talking about? What did you learn in school today? Tell me. His son tells him like this. He tells him, you taught me that when you give in, when somebody hurts you, that gives tremendous bracha. He says, today in school, somebody really, really hurt my feelings in public in front of the whole class. And that's so hard, by the way. It is very hard when somebody gets embarrassed in class in front of everybody. It's so hard. It's so so painful. This boy took his father's words to heart. And he said, I'm going to be mochel. I will forgive and not fight back. He says that he went to the corner of the room. And he started diving to Hashem. He said, Hashem, Hashem. Bishchut, that now that I get embarrassed. And I'm mochel, I forgive this boy that made fun of me in public 100%. Hashem, please take those zechuyot. Please take that thing that I forgave for this boy. Take it and throw it at my sister. That she should find her zivuk. She should find her husband very soon. So daddy, I'm coming back. 
and I'm running straight to the house. I am so confident by me giving in, Hashem will give us bracha. I already asked that our sister engages, our sister engaged. And that's what happened. One month later, says Rav Ben Tzien from Modiyin Lit in Yerushalayim, that happened a couple months ago, Parashat Tito, Tov Shem Pei of 2021, he calls up this alon called Hashgacha Patit, and he told him, my daughter is engaged. One month later, for many, many years, she couldn't find her zivug. One month later, after her little brother gave in to one little kids in school little kids can you imagine how much more so adults oh my gosh that give in to one another because it's harder when you get the older you get the harder it is to give in by the way because more of a difference it makes because of great responsibilities you have this little boy what a tzaddik what a hero he gave in a little you thought it was a small action that small action that you thought was small was tremendous it was meshadech his sister his oldest single sister the power of giving in Rabotai Please take this to heart in the nine days. Let's really make it practical, all those that are watching, including myself. Let's think of one person that we're going to go out of our way to go forgive them, to make sure to be mochelem and also to ask for their forgiveness. I want to end with an interesting mashal. This interesting mashal was given by Rabbi He says one time there was a seminary teacher that wanted to teach her daughters what, is it, what it means to hold a grudge. So she told all the girls in the classroom, I give you homework. Go to the grocery store when you go home. This was in Eretz Yisrael. And each one has to bring a sack of potatoes. Yes, each girl has to bring a sack of potatoes. And that's what they did. They came to school that week with a sack of potatoes. Now she told them, open up the bag, spread the potatoes on the table, whatever potatoes you have, take a red or yellow marker, and start writing on each potato every person's name that you thought hurt your feelings from your past. Whatever the history is from kindergarten, from school, from early high school, your neighbors, your siblings, on each potato, write the name of the person that you feel hurt your feelings over the years. So all the girls right away, they start thinking and thinking, they write a potato, on one potato they write this name, and another potato they write another name. After a couple of minutes, the seminary teacher turns to her students and she tells them, okay, now put it in your backpack. All the potatoes that have names in them that you thought those people, you felt hurt your feelings, take those potatoes with the names, now put it in your knapsack, in your backpack, whatever you want to call it. And that's what they did. And she tells them, for the next three days, I ask of you, wherever you go, never take the potatoes out. See, these girls, you know, they're all excited. What an interesting teacher we have here. Potatoes, I don't know what's going on, markers, who knows, arts and crafts. So they put it in their bags. All the people, all the potatoes that have names of the people that thought hurt their feelings. Now they go on the bus and off the bus. They go home, they go back, back to school, back and forth for three days. You know, it's heavy. They come back to their teacher and tell us, can we take out the potatoes? It's just extremely heavy to have potatoes that you don't need in your backpack, in your knapsack. We have to walk to school and to the bus stop. It's just heavy. So she tells them, yes, you can take the potatoes out, but understand the lesson. The lesson is, every time you never let go, every time you never take that grudge off your heart and off your shoulders that carry so much weight to somebody who hurt your feelings, if you're not going to be mukhadam and just go past it, you're carrying heavy potatoes wherever you go in life. That hard feeling on your heart, oh, this guy hurt my feeling. Oh, this guy, oh, he's so annoying. The fact that you're not giving in and just moving on with it, moving on with it, you're carrying heavy potatoes. You're carrying heavy weight for no reason wherever you go. Let go. Be mukhel. Forgive, said the seminary teacher. What a tremendous lesson. Let's forgive one another. Let's move on. Even not for yourself. The reason why you want to give in is for HaKadosh Baruch Hu. The reason why you want to give in is for Hashem's honor. My Rebbe, before he got married, went up with this. 
he went to Maran Chacham Avadi Yosef and he asked him, what do you think I should take upon myself before I get married? What's the number one rule, Chacham Avadi, you can tell me that I have to keep to in order to have a good marriage? Chamovadia, with his famous slap on the cheek, he told him, Tevatel, Tevatel. He's like, no, Rebbe, that's old news. I want chidushim. I want new thoughts of Torah. Give me something big. He tells him, boom, boom, Tevatel, Tevatel. Just give in, give in. That's the key to have a mutzlach marriage. That's the key to succeed in your marriage. Give in. The men give in to the ladies. Ladies give in to the men. Neighbors give in to each other. Siblings give in to each other. Teachers to students. Students to teachers. Rebbe says, tell me them. Everybody give in. Give in. Be mochel. Leman HaKadosh Baruch Thank you so much for listening. Our final speaker for tonight is Rabbi Shmuel Reichman. Before we call upon him, we want to remind everyone, share this link. Everyone get that last boost of inspiration for you, your friends. Share it to, share it to any groups that you might be in or wherever it is at TorahAnytime.com slash Live or call in 718-298-2077, extension 46. And Bishmur Reichman has, a tr- ha- has tremendous articles that are written in so many newspapers, videos, short clips, shiurim, and he is such a tremendous speaker. And it's our great honor to call upon him for the last messages for tonight's very special program. Rabbi Shmuel Reichman. There's an unbelievably powerful story about a man who disappeared. He went missing. And the wife heard about this and she was horrified. What happened to my husband? She sent out search parties. She called the police. And at a certain point they realized that this man wasn't coming home. At a certain point, they realized he's been gone for this long. Who knows what happened? He probably passed away. And the wife, her entire world was shattered. She couldn't believe it. This was her husband, the Balabais, the center of her world. They built a family together, a life together, and her whole world was destroyed. And the children, the older ones, they started to understand, but the younger ones, they were having difficulty understanding, where's Abba? Why isn't Abba coming home? Where's our Abba? And they were st- their entire understanding of what it means to be alive was, was altered. Their, their Abba's gone. He's not coming home. Their father, their Abba, is, is never coming back into our bias. And the neighbors, they heard about it, and they felt so bad. Oh my gosh, we knew him. We went to shul with him, celebrated simchas with him. And the people down the block, they heard about it. Rahmanullah says, it's awful. Ay, I'm so sorry. And the people further away, they didn't even hear about it. They didn't even know what they lost. They didn't even know that this person was gone. A couple weeks later, miracle. Miracle! Somehow, this man was able to, to come back to his, his wife, his family, his community. Crazy story, you'll never believe it. Baruch Hashem, everything went well. He was saved, everything went back to normal. When he came home, what happened? The wife, oh my gosh, my husband, my world, the center of my existence is back. 
the children of his home, Tati's home, my father's home. The neighbors, the friends, oh my gosh, Baruch Hashem, we were so worried, we are so happy to hear that. The people down the block, they heard about it. The people farther away, they didn't even hear about it. And Tisha B'Av is very much like this. Because what is Tisha B'Av? Tisha B'Av is supposed to be an emotional response. Avail us. We're mourning what we lost. We're, we lost our connection with Hashem. With, with HaKash Baruch Hu, the source of our existence. Our Abba. Our Melech. What happens when you lose that? You're, oh my gosh, the center of your world is gone. The very essence of what it means to be alive is gone. That higher das, that higher connection is gone. It's supposed to be an emotional response. We're supposed to feel what we lost, the chorpam beis hamikdash, the makam hamikdash. That's our makam, our locus, our place of connection with the kashbarach in the most potent way possible. And we have to feel that. But many of us, we're not the wife in that story. We're not the children. Maybe we're the neighbors. Maybe we're the people down the block. Maybe we're even the people far away who don't even know what happened. And every single year, we try to tap into what this means, the Chor Mikdash, Tisha B'Av. And every year we struggle. Because you can only feel the loss if you recognize what it is that you lost. For example... Someone, unfortunately, loses a limb, loses an arm. Their whole life, they, they, they remember what it feels like to have an arm. They see people with arms, they're like, oh, I, I want to have an arm again. Maybe one day there's Ochet to actually get another arm. But if someone is born without an arm, and for some reason they're on an island by themselves, and never see someone with an arm, they don't realize what they're missing because they don't even think it's possible to have an arm. And we were born in a world without a base hamikdash. We don't know what it means to live in a world without a base hamikdash. We don't recognize what we lost, and that—that's the hardest part of Tisha B'av, is not being the person who's down the block who heard about it, not being the person who's farther away. We don't even know what we lost, and the real achrayas, the real purpose, the real mission that we have is we have to figure out how to feel the pain of Tisha B'Av. Because if you don't feel the pain, you can't feel the joy of when it comes back. And if you want to be the, the neighbors, the friends, if you want to be the children, you want to be the spouse, you want to be in love with Hashem in that way that you really feel the loss, then there are three ways to do it. Number one is you have to make Jewish history your story. You have to become a part of this story. Not an observer, not someone who is simply existing in the world. Now you have to attach yourself, attach yourself to Jewish history. Make it your story. Number two is you have to realize that we're not mourning for something that happened 2,000 years ago. We're mourning for the fact that right now, right now, as we are here, as you are watching this, right now, there is something missing in our lives. We are missing a deeper connection to Akash Baruch Hu. We are missing a deeper level of awareness. We are missing something powerful. Missing the Makam HaMikdash, the Beis HaMikdash. We are missing something existentially in who we are. There is something missing. And number three, we have to delve deeper into what it means to be in a world with and without the Beis HaMikdash. 
delve into the deeper ideas of the Beis Hamikdash, uh, of Nevuah, uh, of what we are missing, because the only way you can really appreciate the pain of what we're missing and appreciate the joy of when it comes back is if you devote time, effort, and energy to delving deeper into these topics. And that's our real goal. We are not remembering the distraction of Beis Hamikdash. We are trying to experience the emptiness of a life without it so we can desire the rebuilding of the Beis HaMikdash. And that's the real purpose of Tisha B'Av. It's not just a mourning for something that happened thousands of years ago. It's saying, there's something missing in my life. I want to feel that. I want to yearn for it. I want to yearn for that deeper connection with Hashem. So my bracha is that we should not be the person who hasn't heard about it, not even be the person down the block, not even be the neighbors, but work to become the children in that story, to the spouse in that story, to really feel what was lost so that when HaKadosh Baruch Hu comes back, so to speak. One, when we rebuild the Beis HaMikdash, we will really be able to feel the true joy of rebuilding that true, deep, existential connection with HaKadosh Baruch Hu. Rabbi Reichman, for your tremendous work. Enjoyed this story? Come again. Bring a friend. Stories to inspire.org.